Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, everyone. Welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 117. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Another week of great stories. A special show today. I just thought for a change we'd have two stories, and granted, one's a little bit longer than the other one. You know, the first one up is about 15 minutes long, and probably the second one's about 45 minutes long. But I just wanted to put these two stories out, and to find out, you know, from feedback, which one you prefer. Do you know what I mean? Stories today, one's by M. John Harrison, called The Good Detective, and one's by Ken Scholes, called A Weeping Czar Beholds the Fallen Moon. It's really just, you know, just for a little bit of involvement with everyone, just, you know, email us, go onto the forums, onto Twitter, messages, just say which one you prefer. Do you prefer this kind of stark one from M. John Harrison, you know, the M. John Harrison's style of writing, this kind of dark, bleak, very difficult sometimes prose to get through i know fred's actually reading i think it's light by m john harrison and on the forums (laughs) fred Fred says it's like you know he's reading it and he's he's getting through it but it's like eat your eat your broccoli you know you will eat your broccoli you've got to get through this this difficult task there so it'd be just nice to like a bit of feedback you know what would which story do you prefer I'll give you a little heads up what else is coming in the show. We have a fact article by Robin Bradshaw. Robin's part of the team that's doing the transcribing of the old shows, main Kieran. She's giving a little update how it's going, what's going on over there as well. Then we have the short fiction by M. John Harrison. Then we jump straight in with the main fiction by Ken Scholes. And this Ken Scholes story first came over from Tor.com. And just to give you a little kind of shout-out to Tor, they're doing some great things over there. And they've got a new podcast started where they're playing some of these, or maybe all of these, short stories over there. So do look out for that. I'll put a link on the site so you can go over to see Tor.com. It's hosted by Mer Lafferty. Do you know what I mean? So you can't get any richer experience than that as well. So great guns over at Tor. And that's it's all kind of put together by... Pablo Defendini. So, Pablo, big shout out. Thank you very much, sir. And just at the end of the show, the closing credits, I'll give you a little kind of format or the layout of what else is going to be happening in Oral Delight in this kind of show. You know, I wanted to do some new things in 2010. So, just listen out for that as well. And I'm going to use the editorial now just to wish Cage Baker some, you know, the best of wishes, you know, and hope everything goes all right. We've just heard on, you know, in the science fiction community that she's battling with cancer. Judging by the post that Cage Baker's friends put up, you know, it 
doesn't look that good for Cage Baker, and she has been a blessing for Starship Sova. Do you know what I mean? She kicked really off. Starship Sova kicked off with some of her great work. And I've got, you know, I've got on me kind of hard disk there some more stories by Cage Baker, and she's just an amazing writer and a lovely person to communicate to with, you know, through emails. And yeah, she's, she's now made it public that she's battling with cancer. And like I say, this post tells how how bad it is, do you know what I mean? And I don't think it can get any worse for Cage Baker. It's just a horrible thing that's just kind of hit the science fiction community. You know, a lovely person. And like I say, I just want to send my best wishes. And she's not after kind of financial support or anything like that, but she she would like some emails, you know, encouragement and anything like that. So please, you know, by all means, there'll be a link on the site. There'll be I'll put the written address if you want to send her a card. You know, it's it's just a little bit of support, anything like that, an email, you know. I'll put the email at the front of the website as well, but I'll read it out. And if you want, you know, you can always kind of just keep on rewinding your iPod, your iPlayer, and just, you know, write it down. It's m-a-t-e-r-k-b at gmail.com. Again, I'll read that out for emails. m-a-t-e-r-k-b at gmail.com. And if you want to send Cage a letter or a card, you know, just wishing her all the best, send it to Cage Baker, 331 Stimson, Apartment B, Pissamore Beach, CA, 93449. Now, I don't know if I've read that right, but I will definitely put that on the front of the website just to make sure again. So, please, that's all Cage is after. You know, just a little get well. And, you know, like I say, it's, if you read the post, you know, it's it's a hard time for Cage, and certainly I know Starship Sova's thoughts go with Cage at this time. First off then, I just want to play a little article by Robin Bradshaw. Robin, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is putting together, actually, team leader, we'll call it, team leader for the transcribers. And I just wanted like a little update how it's going, and Robin kindly put this together for me. Hi there, Tony. It's Robin in Nova Scotia, Canada. Pleased to be on the show and representing the transcribers, those valiant souls who have signed on with Crazy Tony and his transcription project. We're going to be bringing you some of the old episodes from about 300 years ago, Internet time, from the old series of author features on the Starship Sofa. I'd like to first introduce the various transcribers, where we are, and what episodes we're working on. We've got Terry Baker in Maine, in the USA. I don't have her episode name, so sorry about that. We have the skelly rocker Craig Webster. He's in Aberdeen, in Scotland. He's bringing us uh, the very first Starship Sofa episode, episode number one, Alfred Bester. We have Douglas Hill in Surrey, in the UK. He's bringing us number 13, Joe Haldeman. We also have Will Reese. He's in Newcastle, England, and is tackling episode 15, Harlan Ellison. So that should be fun. All right, who have we got? Ah, of course, uh, the incomparable Phil Ackerman, who has bravely taken on number 16 and number 17, the two-part special on Douglas Adams. Phil is... Oh, somewhere near Peterborough, which apparently is the center of the universe, so this is good to know. We have Steve Bickle. Steve is taking us uh, to episode number 24, James Tiptree Jr. 
and he lives in uh, Northamptonshire in the UK. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's about 70 miles north of London. I'm doing the episode on Samuel R. Delaney, that's number 27, and Amber MacArthur, currently in Kentucky, but soon to be moving to the other side of the pond, as we say over here. She's bringing us episode number 66, Michael Moorcock. Now, my personal hero, if she even gets half a page completed with a little tiny baby in her arms, is Diane Severson. Diane is uh, well known to us who have been listening to the sofa. Uh, she's living in Hanover, Germany, and she's tackling the episode on Ursula K. Le Guin, episode number 21. So that's us. That's the transcribers. And the project seems to be going along all right so far. We are using various methods to survive and thrive through this challenge. Some of us are using transcription software. Some of us are just transcribing straight from our little iPods right into the computer. And I am using voice recognition software to enter the words of the gentleman directly into my computer and then adding in punctuation afterwards, which involves a lot of clear and monotone translations of what the boys are saying there. Wow. <laughs> anyway, uh, the pace is uh, varying for a lot of us. Uh, in fact, it, you know, it takes more time than we actually anticipated. I think that's pretty much a universal feeling. But we, are, uh, we have a few of us who are near to completing our first episodes. Phil Ackerman right now is my personal hero because he has almost completed his first draft of the two-part episode on Douglas Adams. So that's very exciting. Uh, I believe Steve Bickle and I are not far behind, and uh, everyone's really just fitting the project in wherever they can into their busy lives. And again, Diane, even just signing on, you are my hero. The best thing so far... Uh, about working on this project or getting to know everybody. This is a fine community that Tony's built, and uh, I really thank everybody that I've met so far. We've been having some fun getting to know each other via email, joking around, supporting each other, helping each other translate that there, you know what I'm saying, you know, like I say. Uh, we've been sharing our, uh, sharing our pain in the most humorous possible way, and uh, that's been a great time. The episodes themselves are really funny. They really bring back the old memories. And uh, the biggest challenges we're running into is figuring out how to turn Tony and Kieran into something comprehensible in print. At the outset, we really had some negotiation trying to figure out how we were going to manage uh, balancing accuracy of transcription with something that's mm, readable. <laughs> That's been a fun process, so uh, we're finding an opportunity to get a little creative and have a little fun with the text and maybe have a little fun with the boys while we're at it. Anyway, uh, trying to keep up with the gentlemen as they uh, talk on and figuring out what the heck they're saying, you know, like I say, that can sometimes be a bit of a, a challenge, but uh, we've got each other to count on, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to throw some uh, questions at Tony and have him tell us that he doesn't know. Sometimes there's specific references in there that are a challenge, like to TV shows or long strings of author names. Though we're, we've got Google and we've got each other to count on, so we're getting through it. Anyway, that's about it from me for this introductory piece on the Transcriber Project. Thanks, Tony. Having a great time. Loving the new friends all around the world. And uh, looking forward to talking to you again soon. If you'd like to be part of the Transcribers team, there's still plenty of room on board. Just drop Tony an email. We'd be pleased to meet you. Bye now. 
Yes, if you want to have a go at transcribing, like Robin says there, drop me an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. Basically, it's a bit of a grind, hard work there, but it'll pay off because the idea and the intention is to kind of make a special page. Each person who transcribes has their own page, you know, next to that episode as well. So you get into the, the book as well. So there you go. Drop me a line. Thank you, Robin, so much. So we'll start with our first short story. And like I say, this is today's show. It's just really, which one do you like the best? Do you like M. John Harrison or Ken Scholes? And we'll kick off with M. John Harrison. M. John Harrison, as you know, from 68 to 75, was literary editor of science fiction magazine New Worlds and was part of this so-called New Wave movement. He's had books out, Light, Nova Swing, The Committed Man, Century Device, Signs of Life, Short stories. We've played a short story on Starship Sovas already. East. I've just been in touch with young Mr. Harrison and he's very kindly let Starship Sova get narrated or have narrated Suicide Beach, which I'm looking forward to that immensely. It is narrated by Crispy. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Good Detective by M. John Harrison. Narrated by Crispy. Primrose Hill, that hour when things get hold of you, five o'clock on a dull Saturday afternoon. Single fathers are leading their little girls up and down the wet pathways, and you can see the Regent's Park birdhouse draped like fruit netting across the nearer trees. A systems manager walks away from his first wife. All she was doing was making a phone call, answering a text. She looks up, and he's gone. He's taken the children with him. Where's she supposed to start looking for him? The world's full of harassed men his age, with two daughters and a suitcase. The trains and buses are full of them. Eventually, someone puts her on to me. She's upset. It's new to her, but frankly, I'm used to it. People do this all the time. They're trying to get away from themselves. They're trying to reinvent. And why not? London's kind to the confident. Otherwise, what is there? Get on the tube in the morning and people stare straight into your face from less than one foot distance. That's no way to live. So they go missing, and I find them. I find kiddies and criminals and people who would do crimes if they knew how. I find the people who paint themselves onto your walls, play their favourite music over and over again, and then leave you with nothing but a picture in the night. I never look for the ordinary ones. They're too easy to find. They've cashed in on the housing differential, abandoned Islington. They're off to the Cotswolds, no mortgage, walk the children to school, grow your own vegetables. They've disqualified themselves. Listen to this, though. A man lives in Putney, Barnes, East Sheen, one of those places along the river. He's an actor, an investment banker, a publisher's editor. It doesn't matter. Or he sells something, say mobile phones. Say he sells mobile phones. One day he gets tired of that. He decides to write a book about the area he lives in. This area is two miles on a side, roughly square, no hard boundaries. That is, it's bounded on its north and west by the curve of the Thames, but he can cross that if he wants and enjoy the other bank, Willows, a couple of muddy playing fields and an old bandstand. A little road with allotments on one side, which in the spring looks like a lane in the country. Over there it doesn't look like London at all. This man buys several notebooks of the brand the famous Bruce Chatwin used to use for his writing. He buys some gel pens of different colours. He buys a Nikon 775 digital camera. He then sets off into the streets which surround his house, intending to record everything he sees. Winter, late afternoon. Christmas is close. It's on his heels. The streets are dark and at the same time comfortable, narrowed by cars and a sense of warmth, a sense of drawing together which seems to come from the houses on either side. 
The women have fetched their kids from play school and finished parking their SUVs. In one street of little working men's cottages, they close the curtains. In the next, there are gleams of light from every window. Every street has its own culture. Here, it's more BMWs than Audis. There, they'll keep a pedigree dog, but a pedigree cat is extravagant. Wood floors, a child sitting on a sofa with its knees up, watching something you can't see. She stares out, startled by the flash of the Nikon. The traveller smiles, waves, moves on. Is that the river at the end of the street? Is that a Toyota? He's already lost. To begin with, he brings all this back. From the Nikon, he downloads smoky still images of Barnes Bridge, taken a few hundred yards down river on an afternoon that makes it look like industrial archaeology in Manchester or Bremen. His notes say, every rivet stands out. When I claim some people are too easy to find, what do I mean? Poll tax gave rise to a generation which lived in other people's houses. They formed strong personal ties, yet remained evasive, incurious about one another. As a result, they never fully sighted. They suffered mild depressions and moved on. I'm not looking for them. A train ride with someone you met yesterday. The smell of diesel fuel in carriage air. You look sideways at her face. You're not even sure you like her. The plain fact is, she looks more grown up than you. Her house is cold and needs work. She has a kid. She says things like, I've always got by on my wits. That's exciting, but eventually you interpret it as a judgment. Later you see that's how she lives her life, as a judgment, as an ideological act. It's too forceful, it's too blunt. Worse, it doesn't work. She's just as compromised and vulnerable as you. Later still, the pathos of that hits you. But by then she's long gone, and you are too. I'm not looking for her. Afternoon, Old Compton Street. Rain makes it like an older version of itself. I'm doing the bars with a photograph. Can I just show you this? This is a 16-year-old boy who's gone missing. You haven't seen him round here, have you? No? Can I just leave this with you? Meanwhile, in some other street, Ghost Town, Croydon, UK, the boy's parents have consulted a clairvoyant. She has a vision of him washed up in the waiting room at St. Thomas's Hospital, Waterloo. Easy enough to check. I find he called there using a false name, but became frightened and left without treatment. Treatment for what? They can't say. That's a bit more interesting to me, especially the clairvoyant, but it's still not quite what I mean. Facts are the easiest things to come by. From age 14 upwards, girls run away more often than boys, yet twice as many adult men go missing as adult women. Men aged 24 to 30 are likelier to disappear than any other group. More people go missing from the southeast than any other region in the UK. What did they leave? Well, they left home. Why did they go? They can't tell you. People run away. They relocate. They go missing, as we've said. That's a geographical statement as much as a social one. It's what makes them easy to find. The challenge is in the ones who go missing in their own lives. There's less to know about those people. They live inside us. They have very simple ideas. We rarely hear their voices before it's too late. What does he want, this man from Barnes, whatever his name is? His intention is still unclear. Is he a traveller or only a tourist? Worse, is he a psychogeographer? To start with, he brings it all back. He comes home seven every evening, just as if he's been to work. He's diligent. He keys his notes into the Sony, downloads his pictures. It's an act of capture. For now, at least, his is the narrative of a man who begins to write a book about the immediate area he lives in, a radius of a few ordinary London streets. With every oriel window and garden ornament, every small brick wall described as a feature, 
Then one day, from a narrow corner in Little Chelsea, East Sheen, he hears the following dialogue. Now she's become to claim it's boring in here. Well, of course it is. He stands up close, but he can't see in. He imagines a room smelling of death with two old people talking in their dreary talk beneath the crosses, pietas, and old photographs on the walls. What's her name? I only know her as Myra. A long pause. And then? We wanted that war. All of us wanted that war. World War Three was a great imaginative act of its day. Children are better in pairs. After that, there's only a sound like someone doing the washing up. A cough. Later at home, he realises he hasn't written any of it down. The next morning, he takes the Nikon, but forgets the notebook. Soon, he's leaving them both behind. He feels relieved, a little guilty. He feels naked. Two years later, his wife finds out he doesn't work in communications anymore. That's when she calls me. I listen to the family's ideas. It helps them. I appear receptive, but that's a pretense. All I need is the facts. Who's missing, when it happened, or when the relatives first noticed it had happened. I don't want their theories. They come to my office and sit uncomfortably looking at the desk and the dusty filing cabinet and wishing they'd gone somewhere else. Whatever I say, they always ask themselves, Why did he do this? I could tell them. From the age of 40, he had the feeling of being spread very thin on the world, like a specialised coating. If people weren't careful with him, he felt, if he wasn't careful with himself, he'd crack or peel or flake away. Then one day he was trying to understand the instructions for some household appliance and where it said how to set up the timer. He read instead how to let things slip. In the end, even the correct reading began to seem odd to him. Timer, he thought. That would have been the way it was. For the sake of the family, I looked through the stuff he left behind. It's a collection of professional qualifications, Berber jackets and Australian stable boots. It's a shelf of music CDs, English like classical. I find his laptop. I find the travel notes and the picture files. Stored under personal, and it's all much as you'd expect. That naive, eviscerating attempt they always make to express their inner life as a record of the outer. I find the garage he sold the Audi to. It was a TT, very nice condition. I get positive responses at the White Hart, the Bull, and the Sun. He was seen in all three, last boat race day. But what did those locations mean to him? Nothing compared to the wall he put his back against now, as quaking with the Thames fever, he rests after the long slog up through the woods from the railway, past Mark Boland's memorial and onto Roehampton Gate. He's emaciated, stripped down. He's so far ahead of me. What began as observation became an adventure, then a trajectory of relapse, a going native, the long slow slide into the heartland of his imagination. Eventually I'm on some windy hill, Richmond Park, early morning. I know he was here before me, quivering like an animal that's got the scent of distance in its nose, turning his head slowly so he can discover everything with those new eyes of his. But that was two years ago, and even if he was here yesterday, I won't catch him. He's got his second or third wind by now. He's used to it. In his mind, he's pushing an old bicycle loaded with his things, first towards Wimbledon, then down the long, heartbreaking sweep of the A3 to the sea. It's his space now. I call the wife. I say, he's in your house, but he's not here anymore. I say, you knew that already. I advise her, if you find the husk, leave it where it is. They're often in the garden somewhere, or the attic. 
Some of them you track down, others you don't. And often that's the best thing. Because what are you going to do? Corner them in the loading bay behind a supermarket in Dalston? Chase them down a muddy path in Stoke Newington Cemetery, calling out in a language they can't remember? Back them up against themselves until there's nowhere to run, and whatever dissatisfaction drove them inwards, whatever fire they're full of, bursts out of the neck and sleeves of their crap old raincoat, and they go up in front of you like a bundle of dry sticks. I've seen that happen. Believe me, it's not worth it. Another afternoon, another bar. I'm always on the lookout for the boy who called in at St. Thomas's Hospital, then, unable to control his anxieties, left before he could be treated. You can't keep him away, the barman says. They're so bloody anxious to start their lives. He treats the photo to his oblique, dismissing glance. They think of this as life, it makes him say. He laughs. You should be here in the evenings. Whatever he's seeing is so ordinary it's beyond his power to describe. Life, he repeats. You run the place, I remind him. Too true, he admits, turning back to the spirit optic. A missing person inside your own life. Okay, I'm not sure what I meant by that, but the good detective shares some of those qualities of absence. Qualities of self-disenfranchisement, for instance. He's a torn place in the web which would otherwise detain him. Home, family, profession, culture. I went missing from my own life years ago, but you don't need me to tell you that. And what if, in the end, I'm wrong? What if missing of Barnes only ran away the way the majority of them do? Well then, I'll know. One day I'll stand in an upper room in Haringey looking out. The rain will be falling almost invisibly on the shiny black branches of the trees, dripping off again in big, soft, quick drops. At the bottom of the garden next door I'll see a man working in a shed. It'll be him. I see him like this. He's wearing a blue plaid shirt and safety glasses. His dog sniffs round his feet. Every so often he stops what he's doing and comes to the door of the shed and looks out into his garden or across it towards his house. The dog stands by his leg, its head just touching his knee. It's an old dog with a grey muzzle. After a moment they go back into the shed. He moves the wood from one place to another inside. He puts it up on the workbench. He takes it off again. Everything happens very quietly and comfortingly under the yellow light above the bench and the afternoon slowly gets dark around him. A growing pile of offcuts appears by the shed door and absorbing the rain turns from white to sandy brown. There you go, copyright is Mr M. John Harrison's. And thank you Crispy for a fine narration. So we move on to the next story which is Ken Scholl's A Weeping Tsar Beholds the Fallen Moon. Like I say, this one was first commissioned by Tor.com. Do pop over there and check out their podcast and check out their whole community. If I knew who the narrator was, I trust us I would be able to tell you, but I don't actually know the narrator. I can't find the lady's name anywhere, but I'm sure someone might be able to tell her. Ken Scholes, as you know, did the great lamentation, which I listened to on Audible, and it was just fantastic. Then he came out with Canticle. He's also got Last Flight of the Goddess. And a collection of stories, Long Walks, Fast Flights and Other Strange Journeys, which came out in 2008. And he was very kind, Ken was very kind to let Starship Sova have one of his stories in, Starship Sova Volume 1. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. A Weeping Tsar Beholds the Fallen Moon by Ken Scholes. Frederico leaned close to smell the poison on his 13th wife's cold, dead lips. 
It tickled his nose, and he resisted the strong desire to kiss her that suddenly overcame him. That you might lose yourself from sadness by my lips, my husband and Zia, her open, glassy eyes promised him. He looked away, uncomfortable with her empty, inviting stare. Behind him, the Minister of the Interior cleared his voice and spoke. The Cabinet feels it would be more stabilizing to consider this an assassination. Jazrael was a most popular wife. Federico nodded. She had quite a following among the young girls in Espira, the region she represented, and this was a dance he knew. He'd been in this very room three years ago to watch them cut his ninth wife's body down. When Sasha had hung herself with a rope of knotted silk, six thousand young women in Borut had done the same to declare sisterhood with their region's wife. Assassination, he agreed. For a moment he felt a stab of guilt when he thought about the young girls who spent their childhoods emulating his wives in the hope that one day they would be chosen. I've robbed them of an ending, he thought. He turned now to his minister of intelligence. I assume you concur, Pyrrhus. Yes, Lord Zihar, he answered. Pyrrhus was a large man, his beard and hair close-cropped. He held the Tsar and his tears in quiet disdain, but Federico did not fault him for this. Pyrrhus had climbed the ranks from private to general during the fifty-year war with their bloated southern neighbor, a nation of leftovers from the defunct Ingmark Republic. He'd retired into his intelligence role, bringing an edge to it that only a soldier could bring. He was a hard man from hard times. He ran his hand through his hair. We implicate the lunar resurgence, he said. Federico's eyes wandered back to his dead wife, and he sighed. And then host a purging. He looked up now, forcing himself to meet Pyrrhus's eyes. Pyrrhus nodded. The black coats are already lacquering their guns. We could put the resurgence away quickly enough and be done with their idle mysticism. The Tsar contemplated this. He glanced back to his dead wife, Jazrel, and sighed again. I suppose it would be timely, he finally said. But not even the thought of a purging could lift his downcast spirit. Federico took his mid-morning chai on the observation deck of his winter garden dome, but could not find peace in the bright colors and warm scents that surrounded him. Jazrel's eyes and mouth haunted both his waking and sleeping hours, though he knew this particular grief would pass soon enough. Six days ago, the black coats had begun their work under Pyrrhus's watchful eye, moving out through the cities and rounding up the resurgence. They'd sent birds throughout the districts, leveling their charges and decrying Jazrael's assassination, and the people had responded much as they'd hoped. Outrage in the streets. Young Esperan girls attacking rumored lunarists with hate in their eyes, curses on their lips, and stones in their fists. Wagon-loads of prisoners deposited in the healing care of the Ministry of Social Behavior. Other wagon-loads winding their way to quiet forests where servants could dig quiet graves by moonlight. Tomorrow I eulogize, he thought, as he sipped the cinnamon-bittered chai. A canary flitted past, and he felt the brief wind of its wings move over his unkempt hair. And the softest chiming of a bell reached him, and he lifted his own bell, ringing it twice to signal that he could be approached. 
a black-coat captain, his pale and nervous face starkly contrasting the deep velvet of his officer's jacket, materialized behind one of the dozen crimson-clad house-servants that waited at the garden's edge. He carried something wrapped in burlap. The captain bowed deeply. "'I beg forgiveness and indulgence, Excellency, but Minister Pyrrhus is unable to attend you in person. He sent me in his place with apologies.' The officer risked looking up, and Federico let their eyes meet. There was fear there, and something else. He sees your eyes without disdain. A voice whispered in the back corners of his mind. Was it compassion? Perhaps pity? Federico raised his silk napkin to dab beneath each eye. You have my grace, Cap. Replacing the napkin in his lap, he raised the chai cup and paused before it touched his lips. What news of the purging? We've finished sweeping the capital and outlaying cities. The district outposts report similar progress. He shifted, his leather boots creaking as he did. We found the local temple and set torch to it. Their priestess is in custody. Federico nodded. They'd made good progress in short order. The lunarists had never completely resurfaced after the last purging three years earlier. They'd remained quiet this time, despite a thousand years of dying and coming back to life, a stubborn weed of mysticism that would not forgo his family's garden. I am grateful for the news. I hope they can eventually become productive, rational citizens again. Yes, Lord Tsar, the captain said, and we've found something hidden in the temple. The priestess is being questioned about it now, but Minister Pyrrhus wanted you to examine the object and bid me to bring it to you immediately. He started to step forward, then remembered himself and bowed again. "'May I approach, Lord?' Frederico lowered the cup and gestured for the man to step forward. The captain walked quickly to the small table and laid the object upon it. Then, with his white-gloved fingers, he picked at the corners of the cloth until it fell away to reveal the metal horn underneath. "'No,' Frederico realized. "'Not a horn. A crescent.' and of such brilliant silver that it stung his watery eyes. Sunlight, already sharp and slicing through the crystal domes high above, struck the metal and burst into whiteness. He squinted at it until it took focus for him. There were markings on it, etched lines that were familiar to him. The shape of a continent here, a mountain range there. He suddenly remembered summer nights spent staring up through the glass ceiling of his bedchambers. "'It is the moon at first silver,' he said. The captain nodded. "'It was hidden beneath the altar. The priestess would have given her life to protect it if we'd not overpowered her.' Frederico stretched out a tentative finger, placing it on the surface. It was warm to the touch. "'What metal is this? It's unfamiliar to me.' We are uncertain, Lord Tsar. Minister Pyrrhus has brought in scholars from the Triumvirate Universities, as well as the chief journeyman of the Smithing and Alchemy Guilds. It's unlike anything we've ever seen. It's beautiful, Frederico thought, and didn't realize he'd whispered it aloud until the captain agreed. Yes, Lord Tsar, but there is more, if I may. At Frederico's impatient gesture, he lifted the crescent and came round the table. Careful not to touch his czar, the captain held the silver object up to Frederico's ear. At first, he was uncertain of what he heard 
and imagined it was merely the noise of his own garden, somehow bent around the sliver of moon, much like the light had been. But as Frederico leaned his ear closer, he realized that the sounds he heard lay over the top of the noise surrounding him. His breath caught in his throat, and something washed through him that felt akin to fear or perhaps wonder. He leaned even closer, feeling the warm metal of the moon press against his ear before the surprised captain could pull away. His eyes darted up, and he saw terror on the officer's face. Hold, Frederico said in a quiet voice. Your czar bids you hold. The crescent trembled in the young man's hands, but he held it in place as Frederico brought all of his attention to bear upon the sounds whispering out from this strange and wonderful object. Water burbling, muffled and metallic, and above that, the distinct but muted music of summer frogs. All that day, deep into the night, and all the following morning, he could not escape that incessant whispering. It hunted him even while servants curled and perfumed his hair and dressed him in golden robes. It pursued him through the black-laced motions and trapping of funeral statecraft as he pressed hands with the lords and ladies of his empire and those of the outlying lands. Even as he rode through the pomp and splendor of Jazrael's last procession, he found his memory returning to those sounds like a tongue to an empty socket. When they reached the garden of the fading rose where she was to be buried, and when he stood and gave eulogy to her life, a simple girl chosen as the bride of a god, he found the sound of that running water and those croaking frogs always nearby. When all was finished and when she lay at her final rest— Frederico returned to his private study in the western tower that housed his quarters, stripped off his feline gloves, and rang for Pyrrhus. The old general, still in his black coat and ministerial cloak from the occasion, came quickly enough. Frederico saw the lines in his face and the firm set of his jaw. He is angry at the interruption, but of course he'd say nothing. Frederico gestured to the chair before his wide walnut desk and waited for Pyrrhus to sit. The Minister of Intelligence sat slowly, leaning forward slightly with both boots planted firmly on the carpeted floor. What have you learned about the Silver Crescent? Surprise registered on Pyrrhus's face. Nothing of real certainty. We continue to study it. What does the priestess say of it? Pyrrhus looked uncomfortable. "'Mysticism and nonsense,' he said. "'My men broke her early this morning. "'It took some doing, and I fear they took her too close to the edge.' "'Frederico's eyes narrowed. "'What did she say?' "'She says it is the whispering of the moon, proof of life there.' "'Frederico looked up and out beyond the high glass ceiling of his office. "'It was too early yet, but soon it would rise, blue and green.' We know better than that. Did she say where it came from? From Carnelian, Pyrrhus answered. She claims he brought it back with him. Of course. Lord Philippe Carnelian's One Hundred Tales. The hundredth being his fanciful flight to the moon under the supposed auspices of an earlier czar in the earliest days of the empire, before the weeping bred itself into the great families. 
before the world lost hope and meaning, before the first of the lunarists had emerged from those early times, though there was no evidence whatsoever of a czarist lunar expedition in the meticulous archives Federico's forebears had maintained. We know of a certainty, Federico said, that it cannot be so. Once, maybe, he thought, before the plagues ravaged its blue-green surface and killed the last of the younger gods who had hid away there from a ravaged world below that hated and feared them. I suspect it is simply a harmless curiosity of elder times, Pyrrhus said, something dug out of the rune mark that they've bent into a holy relic. A harmless curiosity. Frederico nodded. I suspect so. What more do you think you will learn of it? Pyrrhus shrugged. I doubt we'll learn much. The priestess is broken. I have no doubt she believes it is lunar in origin. Here he smiled, but it was a weak smile. One can be sincere and still be sincerely mistaken. He thought for a moment. Or misguided, Frederico finally said. Yes. Frederico felt a smile pulling at his own mouth, and it surprised him. Judging by the look on Pyrrhus's face, the slightest hint of his good humor was also surprising to the Minister of Intelligence, though the old soldier tried to conceal it. If you believe there is nothing more to learn, I would like to have it. Now Pyrrhus's surprise could not be concealed. I'm not certain that would be advisable, Lord Tsar. It is a harmless curiosity, Frederico said his voice taking on an intentional edge. Pyrrhus's eyes betrayed uncertainty at how best to proceed. Aye, Lord, but it is also an invaluable artifact that... Frederico's smile widened as he interrupted. That will be kept safest with the best-guarded man in the Empire. At all hours, a hundred of my Red Legion are at watch over me. He sat back in his chair and watched his Minister of Intelligence. And certainly, he added... I will not interfere with its continued study, should there be anything to gain from it. Pyrrhus looked at him, and Frederico saw resolve forming now in the line of his jaw. His tense shoulders relaxed, and the slightest sigh escaped his lips. I will have it sent over tomorrow morning once the current shift of scholars have concluded their study, he said. Frederico inclined his head toward Pyrrhus, a gesture he rarely offered. Thank you, Minister Pyrrhus. The minister returned the nod, but his eyes betrayed a buried rage. "'You are most welcome, Lord Tsar.' He stood and smoothed the crimson trousers of his rank. "'If there will be all, I will return to my work.' He wanted it for himself, Frederico realized. But he put that knowledge aside. "'Yes, minister,' he said. "'That is all.' And after Pyrrhus had gone, after the servants had brought his liquored and foaming chocolate and collected the empty mug once he'd drained it, and after the sun had set and the moon had risen, Frederico still could not purge the sound of that running water and those singing frogs from his ears. He lay awake and alone in his silk-sheeted bed beneath his crystal-viewing dome, and watched the blue-green sliver where it hung haphazard in the star-speckled sky. Frederico gazed out over the crowded room from his private balcony. The men and women, dressed in their finest, moved across the inside of his privacy screen as they moved about the ballroom twenty cubits below. 
They were a rainbow of colors, bathed in light from the gym lamps that spun and scintillated above, hung by fine strands of silver cable. He sipped his chilled peach wine. It is a good party, he said. But even he could hear the lack of enthusiasm in his voice. It had been seven weeks since Jazrel's suicide, six since the silver crescent had come into his possession, and the only comfort he'd taken had come from the unexplainable sounds from that artifact left over from the younger gods. He'd not visited any of his wives in all that time, though that was surprising to no one. He'd favored Jazrel, and she was gone. Tonight, down below, Twenty of Aspira's favored young women waited in hopes that Lord Tsar Federico XIII would ask them to dance and initiate a conversation that might result in courtship. Over two hundred others waited at the palace gates, dressed in their finest and hoping one of the twenty would fail, even though they knew they had no chance of being invited in. Back in Aspira, another two or three thousand sat at home and hoped for notification. That they would be considered if tonight's ball did not bear fruit. Publicizing Jazrael's death as an assassination had created both an anger bent towards vengeance and a compassion bent towards comfort, especially in the young woman who hoped to replace her as his thirteenth wife and represent their corner of his empire. Beside him, the Aspirin senator shifted in his plush armchair. They are a lively lot, twenty of our very best. We've already received proposals from a dozen houses in the event that your lordship does not find them suited to his taste and need. Taste and need. A sudden memory of Jazrel took him by ambush. She was naked and upon him, her hips rocking slowly, her eyes open and fixed on his as she bit her lower lip in the midst of their passion. The bed shook from the intensity of her movement. He shivered from the sudden recollection and pushed it away. Frederico glanced at the senator, a sprightly looking older man, resplendent in a deep blue suit, a black coat, and a gold high collared shirt, and forced a smile. I'm certain they are the best and brightest of your eligible women, he said, but no Jazrel would be found among them. A bell rang, and Frederico lifted his own to reply. Josephus, his minister of the interior, pushed his way through the ruby curtain and bowed. Lord Tsar, he said, I trust that you are well? Frederico nodded and lied easily. I am well. Please sit with us. The minister of the interior sat and pulled a pair of jeweled opera glasses from the velvet case that dangled around his neck. He held the glasses up and picked out the silver tiaras below. Ah, he said, are they not beautiful? The senator smiled at this. Frederico raised his own glasses and looked again. They are lovely. And suddenly she overtook him again, and he smelled Jazrel's perfume mingled with her sweat. The force of it was so overpowering that he spilled wine onto his lap. He leaped to his feet, and the sadness, curled like a snake within him all his days, struck at him, and its fangs went deep. The tears were near now. He felt them pulling at his eyes. And he felt his heart racing as his hands trembled. They come upon me faster now. He slipped his opera glasses into their case and carefully placed his wine glass on the small table they shared. He did not have much time. I am sorry, gentlemen, but I am overtaken by illness. They each stood, unable to mask their surprise, 
and disappointment upon their faces. The Minister of the Interior found his words fastest. Lord Tsar, I... Frederico cut him off. Please give my apologies to Espera's finest, and assure them that they do not lack in any way. Then, before either of his guests could speak, Frederico's guards formed up around him in the anteroom, just beyond the curtain, and they were moving with their emperor, escorting him to his rooms where he could face his demon alone and unashamed. His shoulders shook as they closed the door behind him, and he let the sob out slowly. Despair and despondency washed him, and rather than resisting, he fed the memories of Jazrel, Jazrel fresh from the bath, Jazrel at breakfast on the balcony. He carried himself to his bed, scooping up a bottle of his most potent liqueur. Jazrel beneath him and above him, taste and need. The tears racked him, and he lost all sense of time. He could not tell when he stopped drinking and started clutching at the silver crescent. Drunkenness pressed him into reluctant sleep, and he felt the cold metal pressed up to his wet face as he finally fell away into warm gray. In the distance, he heard the singing of the frogs. And then something else. Something so amazing and alarming that he suspected he was already asleep. A voice. Who is there? it asked. Why are you crying? Then sleep further folded Frederico inside himself. "'and carried him into dream. "'Frederico heard music, distant and metallic. "'It pulled him awake, and he went willingly, "'though his head hurt fiercely from tears and drink. "'His bed was tangled, "'and the sheets were wet from the fever of his melancholia. "'But he'd come through the night and had not harmed himself, "'nor had he poisoned anyone else through the darkness of his soul. "'He could not bear another Sasha, or another Jazrael.' Relief flooded him. Music, he remembered. A harp, he realized. He stared at the silver crescent and remembered his dreams. A voice. Hello? His voice sounded raspy and afraid. Swallowing the foul taste in his mouth, he spoke again. Is someone there? The music stopped, and he suddenly realized that he no longer heard the running water or the frogs. Instead, he heard soft footfalls, and then a voice. Hello? It was a girl's voice. She sounded young. Staring at the crescent, he willed his words to form, his mouth to frame them, but both betrayed him. She spoke again. Hello? Are you there? Then, as if by afterthought, Do you feel better now? Frederico felt his eyes narrow. Who is this? When she laughed... It was music much like the harp. I am Amal Yazir, she said. Who else would I be? But surely you know that already, spirit. Spirit. I do not understand you, he said. She spoke slower this time. I am Amal Yazir, spirit. But you should know that, she snorted. If not, what manner of ghost are you? Frederico felt several things at once. Frustration and confusion fought for predominance. Where are you? Now she laughed. I am in my rooms, of course. I've been at my music again. He paced now, holding the silver crescent to the side of his head. You play the harp, he said. Father tells me that all cultured women of a certain intellect master at least one instrument. 
It sounded reasonable to Frederico, and he found himself nodding before he realized he was doing so. Then he shook his head. Your father sounds very wise. What is his name? More laughter. You are really not much of a ghost. My father is Raj Yazir. Surely you've heard of him. He's very powerful. Her laughter was contagious, and he suddenly found himself smiling. Perhaps you're right. I'm not much of a ghost after all. Of course, he knew there was no such thing. Her voice took on a note of concern and lowered in tone. You're not going to start crying again, are you? No, he said. Because, she added, I really wasn't sure what to do. You're my first ghost. She paused, and when he didn't answer immediately, she continued, Are the other ghosts as sad as you? He opened his mouth to speak, and the bell ringing at his door caused him to close it. He thought for a moment, then lowered his voice to just above a whisper. I'm going to have to go away for a bit, he told her, but I will come back as soon as I can. Off with you, she said, to your ghostly affairs. She chuckled again, and then added in mock imperiousness. If I have time, perhaps I will speak to you when you next haunt me. Frederico hastened to his bedside and put the silver crescent deep beneath the pillows. Then he rang for his servants and instructed them that he was taken ill and not to be disturbed until the next morning. Still, after they'd left him alone, he sat for a long while and stared at the silver crescent. The waters and frogs had soothed him, had become a secret calm for him in distress he could not fully comprehend. The weeping took him more often, it was true, but he'd found scarce comfort in times past. The two wives he'd most delighted in had not been able to live with the knowledge of his sorrow, the sorrow that was his family's to bear for reasons no record remained to speak of. But last night, clutching that slice of moon to his ear as he wept, gentled by the frogs and the brook of some distant place, he'd felt better, as if it had known his need and bent towards it. And now this new development both intoxicated and terrified him. A voice. A girl by the name of Amal Yazir. How young he could not say. Some part of her voice was all the innocence of maidenhood, but there was a sly intellect, cunning even, beneath the skin of it. He made a note to ask after that house. House Yazir. It was not familiar to him. Could it be as easy as that? And why not? Perhaps this bit of mirrored silver was truly a toy of the younger gods, a way to speak across great distance. Some leftover, like the hills of their long-ruined cities, or the sighs and groans that leaked out from their tombing caves, or those rare lights that swam the deep ocean floors. Their playthings scattered the world. It wasn't unimaginable. Perhaps this Yazir was some minor noble in the Ingmark Republic. Perhaps the toy had lain untouched in some shadowed place near a stream until this Amal Yazir had found it, drawn to it by the sound of Frederico's weeping. A chain of coincidence? Frederico thought not. For those not of noble birth, coincidences like that were what life was made from. But not for a czar. Everything was ordered and purposed. Taking a sip of water from the crystal glass on his night table, Frederico reached into the pile of pillows and drew out the silver crescent. Amal was at her harp again, and the tune was the same that had haunted him awake. He could not see her fingers move over the strings, but he heard them as a dream filled with passion and woe. They weep, he thought, and Frederico smiled.
Frederico lay in his bed and did not feel the weight of weariness he should have felt for having gone without so much sleep. For three days, Frederico hid in his rooms beneath the spell of the silver crescent and the girl's voice within it. He took his meals there, barking for the servants to be quick as he hid the crescent behind his back or beneath the silk sheets of his bed. And when they left, he brought it back to his ear and resumed a conversation days in the making. For her part, Amal had less freedom than he did. In those times that she had to leave at her father's bidding for one lesson or another, Frederico sat at his desk and wrote out from memory what details he could discern from their conversation. There had not been many, but enough to keep him busy for a few hours here or there. Books with titles he did not recognize. References to places he had never heard of. These were the barbs on a larger hook that held him fast and kept him never more than a few spans away from the bauble that had gone from offering strange comfort to defining something empty within himself that he had not noticed before. And it had done so in such a short amount of time that it frightened him, but the fear could not compete with the sense of exhilaration. He had not wept once in those three days. Now he lay upon his back and stared up at the moon, waiting for Amal to return. Tonight he would have to sleep. Tomorrow, despite the strong desire not to, he would return to his work. Still, he would take a few hours with her tonight before giving himself to rest. Her voice reached him, out of breath. Are you there, ghost? He chuckled. I've told you, I'm no ghost. I am Frederico. Then he chided her gently. It is more polite to call a person by their name. He heard the noise of her thrashing her way into bed. He'd noticed the first two nights she'd done the same, and in his mind's eye he saw the girl crawling beneath the covers of her faraway bed, kicking and wrestling them into a more comfortable disposition. But why should I do that? she said, when I know of a certainty that you are a ghost. There was a coquettishness to her voice that played him like a harp. And what is your certainty of my ghosthood? He could hear her smile now around her words. Because, Frederico, you haunt me so very well. And now, gone was the innocence, and in its place the voice of a woman. You haunt me when we speak. You haunt me when I'm away. I cannot escape your voice, even when you are silent. Tonight my father scolded me three times for my inattention to his alchemy lesson. He thinks I've fallen in love with one of the Machvolt boys. He's quite cross about it and has confined me to my rooms. She giggled, and the girl was back now in her voice. Frederico noted the unfamiliar word, but lost it when the rest of her words registered. He thinks I've fallen in love. If I am a ghost for these reasons, he said, then perhaps you are as well. Oh, she said, I can assure you that I am not. He smiled. Then how do you explain my own haunted state? I am Amal Yazar, daughter of the great blood wizard Raj Yazar. You are not haunted. You are merely enchanted by my powerful magics. They both laughed, and Frederico didn't bother to tell her this time that there was no such thing as magic. After... They fell into another conversation that carried them until dawn touched the sky with pink fingers. Frederico's ministers waited around the table for him, and he came in late to remind them that he did not operate on the schedules they made for him. He smiled at them and noted their surprise. The minister of the interior spoke first. Is the Lord Tsar feeling better? We've been quite alarmed by... 
He started speaking as he sat. I'm quite well, Minister Josephus. He offered another smile and inclined his head first, a rare honor he now granted. Blushing, Josephus fumbled with the papers before him, then realized he had not returned to the nod. He blushed even more and inclined his own head. Thank you, Lord Tsar. I am delighted that you are well. Frederico opened the portfolio in front of him and scanned the agenda for their meeting. He glanced at Pyrrhus and Josephus. I'd like to meet with you both after we're finished here this morning. They nodded, and then the meeting swallowed them all. There was unrest in Espira, accusations of lunarism that led to violence in the taverns and streets as that region continued to grieve their lost wife. We believe it will stabilize once you've chosen your new wife, Pyrrhus said, and Josephus nodded in agreement. Frederico smiled at this as well. The meeting continued beyond the unrest. Covering plans to evade increased trade tariffs with Ingmark and their other neighbors, intelligence reports of muster fire in the northern tundra region of the Han, and an executive session regarding the last action items of the lunarist purge and the earliest reports of re-socialization potential among some of the captured cultists. As the meeting flowed on around him, Frederico found himself engaging as if it were a fencing match. He darted in with a thrust of a sentence here, a parrying question there, steering the meeting to a crisp and quick conclusion. As the others left, he stood and waited with Pyrrhus and Josephus. When all but the guards had vanished, he bid them sit. Frederico sat last. I have need of your assistance, he said. We are sworn to it, Lord Tsar, Josephus said. Frederico glanced at Pyrrhus. The Minister of Intelligence said nothing, but inclined his head ever so slightly. I need information on a house Yazir and its master Raj Yazir. Pyrrhus cleared his throat. If I knew more, I could serve better, Lord Tsar. I don't know more. I believe it is in a tropical clime, either near or on a sea. Inquire of the Shippers Guild. Put the word out to our agencies at home and abroad. He looked up and locked eyes with each of them for a moment. Giving them his most sober stare. Spare no expense. Josephus opened his mouth to speak, but Frederico rang the bell of dismissal and stood. They turned their eyes down, and he paused out of respect. He resisted the sudden urge to thank them and left the room quickly. I am changing. He felt more confident, found himself doubting less in his own decisions. The fog of the sadness was lifting from him now. And it came from the slip of a girl who believed he was a ghost. Until her, he thought, perhaps I was. Frederico lay on his bed and stared up at the blue green moon. Over the last month, he'd grown to love these nights, and, he thought, perhaps even to love the young woman Amal Yazir. It can't have been much of an empire, Amal said. There's no record of it whatsoever, back to the time of the younger gods, and it's a small world. Might have known of it. Frederico laughed. It is the greatest empire in the known world, a vast world. My people consider me a god. Considered, she said, laughing. Considered? Frederico asked. Yes, she said. Considered, past tense. You're a ghost, remember? She giggled now. Obviously a mad one. Perhaps, he said, with as much sarcasm as he could muster. You could cure me with your so called magic. He heard the mock incredulity in her voice. I'll have you know, Lord Tsar Frederico, that I will indeed cure you once I've earned my alchemy rankings. And perhaps I'll even restore you back to life so you can serve me better. 
Frederico chuckled. I would indeed serve. Aye, you would. He rolled onto his side, feeling the warm metal against his cheek. You know I'm looking for you. He heard the sound of her skin moving over cloth. Silly ghost, you'll not find me. He smiled. I started some time ago. I've got ships to the nine seas now, asking after you at every port. Now she laughed. Nine seas? Don't be absurd. That would be an impossible amount of water. Frederico joined her in laughing. Said the girl who believes in magic. Then he lowered his voice, and he heard resolve in it. I will find you, Amal Yazir. Her voice took on playful taunting. And what then would you do with me? Frederico pondered this. What would he do? Sail the world to make an offer to her father for her hand? Have Pyrus forge papers and establish her in Aspira, or, bolder still, extend citizenship to her and provide her an estate openly, risk disappointing the populace? He let playfulness enter his own voice. I can describe several of the things I would do with you, Lady Yazir, if you wish it. But the softness of her moans told him she'd already started imagining these things herself. Smiling, he joined her. Frederico pointed to the corner of his bedchamber and watched the servants as they put the harp in place beside its ornate stool. It had been his grandmother's, though she'd never played it. He remembered that it decorated her rooms and towered above him. It seemed much smaller now. The palace steward waited by the door. Is everything to your satisfaction, Lord Tsar? Frederico smiled. It is, Philippe. Thank you. A momentary cloud crossed the steward's face, and he looked away. I am pleased to serve, Lord Tsar. Frederico studied the man. He withholds something but does not wish to. He waited until the servants left. Then, as the steward turned, he called to them. Hold, Philippe. Come in and close the door. Hailing, the steward did so, and when Frederico pointed towards an armchair near the unlit fireplace, he smoothed his saffron robes and sat carefully. Frederico joined him. Something disturbs you, Philippe. I'd know what it is. Dots of sweat appeared above the man's upper lip and upon his brow. It would not be proper, Lord Tsar, for me to... Frederico chuckled and leaned forward. It is proper if your Tsar asks it of you. Philippe took a deep breath. There are whisperings, Lord Tsar, that you are profoundly unwell. Frederico smiled. Do I seem unwell to you? The steward shook his head. You seem happy. The servants comment that they've not seen or heard the weeping in a goodly while. Frederico sat back in the chair. I am happy, Philippe. What else have you heard? The old man shifted in his chair, his eyes darting to the left and right. That Jazrel wasn't truly assassinated by the lunarists, but a suicide. That she spent a night with you during your weeping not long before. That you can be heard speaking in your rooms when no one is present, sometimes late into the night. Now, with his tongue suddenly loosened, his words came faster, almost jumbled together. Some say you've driven yourself mad with grief and guilt over Jazrel, falling into some kind of grinning mania. Some say you speak into a silver mirror. Some say you are speaking with the moon. Frederico felt the teeth of Philippe's first words as they chewed their truth into him. Then the last caught his attention, and he looked up. How I respond is important here, he thought. The staff will always talk, 
Frederico said as casually as he could. Then he chuckled. You can certainly assure them that I'm not speaking with the moon, nor am I mad. I know their words trouble you, but don't let them. It means nothing. Still, I would have you keep your ears open and bring any other tidbits of gossip my way that you hear. He leaned even further forward. And do discourage the staff from that lunarist nonsense. Philippe nodded. I certainly will, Lord Tsar. Thank you, Federico said. I have become grateful for what was once my due. He stood, bowed his head slightly, and when the servant did the same, Frederico did not ring the dismissal bell. Instead, he walked the steward to the door. Also, he said, I want you to extend a private dining invitation to Senator Tannen. Pay his house steward handsomely for knowledge of the senator's favorite dishes and spirits. Be certain our chefs can accommodate before the invitation is offered. Philippe nodded. Yes, Lord Tsar. He locked the door behind the steward and went into the bedchambers. He pulled the lockbox from beneath his bed and spun the cipher into it. He drew out the silver crescent and held it to his ear. Amal? He heard the harp and then the voice. I am here, ghost. You can teach me now, he said, seating himself upon the stool. He heard the delight in her laugh. You have it there now? I do, Lady Yazir. For an hour she talked slowly and quietly to him as he picked notes out upon the strings. It was only later, after she'd gone for afternoon lessons, and while he was checking intelligence reports for any news of House Yazir, that he realized what the tune was she had carefully walked him through. It was the song she played upon the night they first met. He smiled and signed papers authorizing three months of expenses and redoubled effort to find this woman who brought music to him. They took their dinner in the private dining room, and Frederico waited until they were well into their second bottle of Calabria wine before he asked his favor. The meal had been perfect. Broiled salmon, drizzled with a white lemon sauce, and decorated with asparagus spears across a bed of peppered rice. Crabbed cucumber salad and garlic-steamed mushrooms preceded it, and Frederico knew that a pear tart followed once the Calabria wine tickled their appetites back to life. He smiled at the senator. I have a favor to ask of you. It relates to the matter of my need for an aspirin bride. Frederico saw the hope come alive in Tannen's eyes. Certainly, the senator had to wonder why he'd been granted this rare dining experience. Certainly, Lord Tsar. Name it. It is no favor. It is my honor. Smiling, Tannen bowed his head. Frederico returned to the bow. I wish to purchase an estate in Aspira on the coast. I am certain we can find a place suitable for you, Lord Tsar. Have you met someone of interest there? Frederico shook his head. No. Not there. It is on behalf of someone else, a Lady Amal Yazir, but it would be more proper for the deed to reflect her father's name, Lord Raj Yazir. The senator's brow wrinkled with thought. I'm not familiar with those names. They are from abroad, Frederico said. I am not sure of Lady Yazir's arrival, but I will tell you when I know. It will need a good steward, someone reliable and discreet. He watched the governor's eyes, and when the understanding bloomed in them, it was bright. I understand, Lord Tsar. There will be generous remuneration for Aspira, Federico said quietly. And for you, of course. I have a hunting manor for you in the gaming wood. He paused. And once her residency is unquestionable, 
I will make proposal and settle this matter of Nespir and Bride. He raised his glass and his eyebrows. What say you, Senator? There was the briefest hesitation before Tannen smiled and raised his own glass. Aspira is ever yours, Lord Tsar. Thank you, Tannen. Because of the sensitive nature of this matter, I will arrange my gratuity with care. I understand completely, Lord Tsar. And with that, Frederico clapped, and a servant appeared with the steaming pear tart. Frederico lay in his bed, feeling the sweat dry on his skin. I bought you a house today in Aspira. He told her. She giggled. A ghost house? He smiled. It had become a game between them. Yes, he said. On the coast of my ghostly empire. Images of palm trees and white sands flashed behind his eyes. It's always warm there. Like home, she said, but not an island. Not an island, he agreed. She sighed, and the sound of it was like soft hands upon his skin. I suppose you think you'll carry me away from my father's tower in a large white ship after paying him some enormous dowry. I suppose so, he said. And what if he refuses my hand? Frederico stretched and stifled a yawn. I do not think he will, but if he did, I would persuade him otherwise. Amal laughed. You do not know my father, and he does not know me. She was silent for a moment, and when she spoke, the play was gone from her voice. Who are you truly, Frederico? I call you ghost, and make light of your empire, but I've been through the library and I've found nothing. Where do you live? Where are these nine seas you sail in search of me? And are you truly as wonderful as you seem, or are you just some whispering memory of a younger god long dead and captured within this bauble I've found? He closed his eyes. If I am wonderful, I think you've had a part in making me so. And I could ask the same of you. I've spent enough gold searching you out to finance a regional government for two years. I've found no island paradise, no silver tower, no record or recollection of the name Yazir in any of the thousand places I've searched. Sometimes, he said, I wonder if you are not the ghost. Maybe we both are, she offered. Perhaps. If so, then you'll not mind my ghost house in Aspira. She laughed. And why would I live in Aspira rather than with you in your ghost palace? He told her little of his wives. A truth be told, he'd not thought of them since meeting the girl. And he'd not spoken of Jazrael at all. That loss seemed a private thing to him, or, at the very least, something to share when their eyes could meet and their hands could touch. Eventually, he told her, You would live with me, here, but these matters are complicated. Amal sighed. I would imagine so. Being an emperor would be frightfully complex, I should think. It has its moments. So does being the daughter of a wizard, Frederico laughed. I am certain that it does. You know, I've asked my father's mecho servitor about your empire and your nine seas. His mecho servitor? His metal man. Surely you have mechanicals in your empire. A metal man. Frederico thought about the handful of mechanicals he'd seen. Just last week, he'd seen a bird made of metal that could fly and recite verse. A few, he said. Mostly small things. Nothing so elaborate as a man. Oh, he is a wealth of knowledge beyond even our library. I see him infrequently as he's often in the basements about my father's work. What did he say? She chuckled. He made inquiries of where I'd heard such nonsense. I told him I'd read it in a book somewhere, but could not remember which. 
She also hides me from her world, he thought, and he wondered why that impulse was strong within them. Initially, they might think it was madness, but it would only take a moment to draw out the crescent and prove the truth of it to any who wished to know. Perhaps we knew it changes when it becomes more than the two of us. When she yawned and stretched, he heard the sound of sheets moving across her skin and heard the pull of sleep in her voice. Talk me to sleep, Frederico, my Tsar. Tell me about my house in Aspira. Yawning himself, Frederico rolled to his side and began describing the estate, with its gardens and butterflies, green pools and white sands. When her breath became slow and steadied, he smiled. Dream sweetly, Amal, my love, he said quietly into the crescent. Then carefully, he lowered it into its velvet-lined box, closed the lid, and pushed it back beneath his bed. Frederico did not announce his visit to the Ministry of Social Behavior, but somehow they expected him and ushered him into the minister's office immediately. Pyrrhus was there as well, his anger barely concealed. "'This is most irregular, Lord Tsar,' he said. Still, he stood and bowed his head. "'Quite out of the ordinary,' the Minister of Social Behavior agreed, following Pyrrhus's lead. He looked more nervous than angry, and Frederico noted that. "'It may have been once,' Federico replied. Perhaps you've noticed some recent changes in what was once deemed regular and ordinary. He smiled and went straight to the topic of his visit. I want to see the lunar priestess. I've had a month of excuses and I'll have no more. Broken or not, ill or not, raving or not, I will see her and I will interview her privately. Though it was not his ministry, Pyrrhus spoke first. Frederico noted this as well. But the Tsar raised his hand, cutting him off. Minister Pyrrhus, is what I ask beyond my right as your czar? There was fire in his eye, but the old man bit his tongue. Anything you ask, Lord Tsar, is within your right. Very well. He turned to the Minister of Social Behavior. Take me to her, then. The Minister glanced to Pyrrhus, then back to Frederico. Yes, Lord Tsar. They climbed wide and sweeping marble stairs and strode down paneled halls decorated with black and red roses of empire, past portraits of the royal family. In the eastern ward, they climbed the corner tower to the midpoint and paused at a walnut door. The minister inserted a key and turned the lock while Pyrrhus tried and failed to disguise the anger in his face. Frederico looked to each of them, then looked to the captain of his crimson guard. I will leave when I'm finished. I will ring if I have urgent need of you. The captain saluted. The ministers inclined their head. Frederico opened the door and slipped into the brightly lit room, pulling it closed behind him. It was a wide open space with a comfortable bed and a small table, a wardrobe, and glass-paned doors that opened onto a caged balcony garden. In the garden, a middle-aged woman with graying red hair sat upon a simple wood chair and hummed at the butterflies that lifted and landed from her naked skin. Frederico found himself blushing at her nudity, and he turned away from her. "'Forgive my intrusion, lady,' he said. "'I did not know you were indecent.' She laughed. "'I am never indecent.' The laughter melted into a smile as she stood. He glanced towards her as she turned to face him and saw continental lines of strength and islands of softness in the curving of her body. He looked away again, a blush rising once more to his cheeks. 
You are the weeping czar Frederico, she said. It tried not to notice her breasts. I no longer weep, he said in a quiet voice. Then it's begun. She stopped, then took another tentative step closer to him. They've given it to you, and you've spoken into it. Her eyes were bright with tears. He'd spoke back to you, and now you are the last weeping czar. She smiled sweetly at him. There was something compelling and confident in the priestess's words. Frederico felt something like curiosity rising within, or perhaps it was fear. He heard traces of it in his voice. What has begun? She took another step closer. The year of the falling moon, she said. Just as St. Carnelian told us. She started humming again, swaying now to the music. Outside, the butterflies danced with her, and Frederico blinked at it all and waited for her words to register. Carnelian, the storyteller with his fanciful journey to the moon. He opened his mouth to protest, to tell her that the moon was the poisoned garden of gods long fled or extinct. But suddenly he was caught by the song she hummed. He knew it. Where have you heard that song? Her body rippled like a river bathed in light. He brought it back with him along with the crescent. But you should know this. Your family financed his expedition. Frederico bristled at the nonsense of her words. There has never been a czarist lunar expedition, she smiled. There has, Frederico. It's the best-kept secret of your family and the source of its weeping. Her voice lowered now. Soon the time for secrets will be past. The moon wizard is awake, and the end of an age is upon us. The moon wizard. He'd read Carnelian's story as a boy. Most boys had. But it had been many years ago. He did not remember reading anything about a moon wizard. But he did remember something else. It came to him, accompanied with laughter and a playful assertion. I am Amalia's ear she had told him one night long ago, daughter of the great blood wizard Raj Yazir. He looked at the priestess. She still hummed the song, the one he'd slowly learned upon the harp upon Amal's tutelage, and she danced in quiet supplication. Did Carnelian name this moon wizard? She shook her head. He did not, and that first, smaller edition of his tales was gathered and burned. She stopped dancing, and their eyes met. He himself was gathered and burned eventually, she told him in a sober voice, when he refused to recast his perilous tale at the behest of his czar. Frederico shook his head. He died in retirement in Aspira, a man of great honor. He died in a fire in some basement furnace beneath your palace, she said, branded a traitor for telling the truth. Frederico swallowed. Something in her words held him and demanded that he ask the next question. What truth did he tell? Sit with me, she told him, and I will share his gospel with you. Frederico looked to the door, then back to the woman. Their words, he told himself. Hearing could not hurt him. But already this woman struck a chord within him that resonated as true as any upon his grandmother's harp. He'd studied enough of the Lunarists to know they believed a tragic inn awaited a faithless world, but he'd never cared to know exactly why and what kind of end. It was enough to know that it hung upon mysticism and bordered it on madness. But now a hunger for the words rode him, and he walked slowly to the chair she pointed to. Folding his hands into his lap, he sat. Teach me about the moon, 
he said. She smiled, and in her smile, Frederico saw damnation and salvation dancing together to the strains of a familiar tune. The servants began delivering the manuscripts and documents, even before he'd returned to his rooms. He saw them filing past out of the corner of his eye as he silently took his lunch in the small dining room near his suite. He'd waved Pyrus and the others away when he'd left the Puristus's quarters, and the black clouds that gathered within him must have migrated to his face, for they did not ask. The Minister of Social Behavior looked concerned. Pyrus looked bemused. That amusement became something else when Frederico started listing off the books and records he wished brought to his rooms. He couldn't tell if it was the tone of voice with which he issued the commands, or if it was the documentation itself that he wished to see, but Pyrrhus had looked almost eager to accommodate him. And now a stream of men and women flowed into his rooms with arms stacked high, then left for yet more. He chewed his orange-soaked pheasant slowly, and thought about the gospel of Philippe Carnelian. He could not find the good news in it, but he knew it was because the finality of her words was still sinking in. If her words were true, then the world sat at the edge of a great change, and there was nothing that could be done for it, and he'd played a part in it. He'd sought to cover his shame by blaming the lunarists for Jazrel, and in doing so, he'd uncovered an older shame, the root of his family's tears. He'd spoken into the silver crescent, and it had answered him. He'd wept into it, and something like joy had found him. He'd gone in search of truth, and found sorrow waiting in its place. Suddenly angry, Frederico swept the platters and goblets from his table. They clattered against the walls and floor, causing the servants to jump and yelp at his sudden violence. It surprised everyone, including him. He stood, mumbled an apology, and fled to his rooms and the mountains of paper that awaited him there. He did not bring out the silver crescent that night. Instead, he kept the lamps up and launched his research. The priestess had given him a long list of places to start, and he went to those first, finding her words confirmed with each scrap he read. The Ministry of Intelligence had been careful, certainly. There were no blatant confessions, no straightforward accounts. But he found what he sought. Verification of the priestess's words in the nooks and crannies of it all. In budget lines and meeting notes and veiled references and coincidental dates from a thousand years before. Initially, there was wonder to be found, but beneath it, shame. And as the clues fell into place, the shame gave way to dread. That dread grew within him until finally, as the sun grayed the eastern sky, it spilled over again into anger, and he went at last to the silver crescent. "'Are you there?' he asked it rubbing his eyes as if somehow that effort might erase what he'd learned. He heard stirring, and then a sleepy voice. Frederico? He didn't answer at first. Amal's voice had an edge of panic to it. Frederico, are you there? Where have you been? I fell asleep waiting for you. How old are you? He finally asked. He could hear the flatness in his voice. How old are you, really? Nineteen she said. But I've told you that before. She couldn't be nineteen, and he knew it now. And your older sister? His voice was sharper now than he intended it. I have no older sister. No, he realized. She was correct in that assertion. But you had one, he said. And there were two daughters. I don't know what you're talking about, Frederico. I am my father's only daughter. 
Perhaps, he said. You should ask him about Amira. But even as he said it, he knew he should not have, and with that same realization, he knew that the girl he'd spent so many nights with, talking from moonrise to moonfall, had no more understanding of what it all meant than he had just a day earlier. I should not punish her for knowledge she does not have. Yet he wanted to, and now, just as suddenly, his desire to hurt her melted away at the fear he heard in her voice. What's wrong? He heard tears just beyond her panic. What's happened? Have your ships found something? He would send word to call the ships back in a few hours. No, he said. They found nothing. There had been nothing those ships could possibly find. Only one czarist ship could ever have found evidence of Raj Yazir and his two daughters. And that ship had been dismantled bolt by bolt, broken bit by bit, and buried at sea long, long ago. Its very existence had been hidden so well that the only reference left to it was the gaps in the supply records and the fanciful tale of a man discredited and later murdered by those who sent him to document the journey. Still, he fared better than the rest of the crew, and far better than the girl he brought back with him. Amal's voice shook him out of memory. If not the ships, then what is it, Frederico? He looked up at the crystalline ceiling of his chambers. Already the sky moved toward Mauve and the moon had vanished. He remembered the priestess's words to him after he'd finished hearing her tale, after he'd raged and then sobbed there at her feet in her prison. What do you see in your night sky, Amal? Stars, she said. Stars and more stars. It deceives his own children, he realized. No moon, then, he asked. But it would be so much larger than a moon. It would fill the sky and light up the night, brown and green and blue and massive. No, she answered. Frederico sighed. And nothing else? Nothing else, she said. And as if it somehow added credibility, she added, I swear it. Frederico's mouth went suddenly dry and his hand shook. I should not say more, he told himself. But at the end of everything he'd learned this night, he could not bear being the only one ambushed and overwhelmed by unexpected truth. What if I told you, he said slowly, that your father kept an entire world out of your view? He waited for the words to settle in. Could he do that, with his magics? There was silence. He heard the rustle of cloth, then heard the faintest trace of wind, the lingering sound of frogs upon it. Why would my father keep something like that from me? I do not know, he answered. But couldn't he? He heard the tension rising in her voice. And why wouldn't he tell me about an older sister? I do not know that either, Frederico said. But he wondered if he did know, and if perhaps Raj Yazir had hidden both the world he watched and the daughter he lost in order to spare his youngest a grief she was too innocent to bear. But how could Federico tell her that? Why would my father keep anything from me? Amalia's asked again. I do not know, he said once more. If you don't know these things, she said now, her voice clearly angry, perhaps you'll know why I would believe a lying ghost rather than my own eyes and my own father. But she did not wait for a reply this time. Frederico could hear the softest of cries and knew it was the sound of her sudden, angry exertion. For a moment, 
his ear filled with the hollow sound of air rushing past, and he felt the vertigo as if he himself fell. Then there was a crash. After the crash, the sound of running water and frogs. Somewhere, above and beyond that, a girl sobbing. Pyrrhus swept into the room before the bell of his arrival sounded, his face red and his jaw firm. His black coat escort fell back before Frederico's red brigade guard, but not before menacing glances were exchanged. Trouble grews there. Minister Pyrrhus, Frederico said, putting down his glass of Calabari wine. He smiled. You've no doubt seen my release orders for the lunarists. It is, Frederico cut him off. "'Well within my right as Tsar, Pyrrhus. "'I've sent word personally to the Minister of Social Behavior.' "'He leaned forward. "'We've more emergent matters to address than that harmless cult. "'War is coming, Pyrrhus, and we must be ready.' "'Pyrrhus looked perplexed. "'War? With whom?' "'Frederico stood and went to hit the table. "'It stood stacked, high, with volume upon volume, "'some from his frantic first night of research.' more from the last two nights. He'd kept the crescent nearby in case she called out to him while he pored over the records, but she hadn't, and that was not surprising. He gestured to the papers there, then swept the broader room with its similar piles of parchment and book. "'What if I told you, Pyrrhus, that there was a threat at least a thousand years brewing?' The old man snorted. "'What do you play at, Frederico?' One of the crimson-clad guards started forward, but Frederico waved him off. I play at nothing but the truth. A thousand years ago we went to the moon, and we've wept ever since. Pyrrhus had gone from perplexed and angry to starkly surprised. You believe that there is a threat of war to us upon the moon? Frederico nodded. I do. We took the moon wizard's daughter. We tortured her to death. When Carnelian got out of hand, we quieted him quickly enough, too. Its words came out faster than he intended. Pyrrhus began to smile. You think I'm mad? Frederico said. I assure you I'm not. Mark me. We've preparations to make, and still they may not be enough. I've called the war cabinet together for a meeting tomorrow morning. The year of the falling moon is upon us. Pyrrhus laughed, and this time the guard made no move. Without another word, the Minister of Intelligence spun about on his heels and left quickly, his black coats falling in behind him as he went. That fourth night, Frederico fell asleep with his head cradled in the silver crescent. He wasn't sure why, even knowing the threat, he could not stay awake. As much as he hoped to never hear her voice again, he longed for it, even prayed for it, though he had no God to pray to. Overhead, the sky was shrouded in clouds that promised coming rain. He heard her voice from far away, calling his name, and he stirred awake slowly. Amal? Her voice drew closer, and was suddenly there, filling the crescent. Frederico? She sounded small and far away, something wounded and broken. Do not answer her, some part of him warned. I'm here he said. You were right. I've seen it now. Seen what? He asked, but he knew what. It filled her sky and boggled her. I know where you come from now, Amal said. I know all of it now. Frederico wanted to speak, but didn't know what to say. Instead, 
He waited and let her continue. I tricked my father's mecho servitor into showing me. That was yesterday. Then I spent last night in father's hidden library. He could tell from the rawness of her voice that she'd been crying. I don't know how he's kept it from me or why, but he somehow he has, she sniffed. And now I'm sure he knows I know something. I've stayed away as much as I can, but he's been asking the servants a lot of uncomfortable questions about how I've been spending my time. Frederico sat up. Do your servants know about me? She was quiet for a moment, then answered in a quiet voice. I think they do. They've caught me with you before. He sighed at the powerlessness that washed over him suddenly. I don't know what to do. There's nothing you can do, she told him. She cried for a bit, then, and he heard her quiet sobbing, as if it were a canticle played out in a minor key, like the song she'd taught him. He felt his own sadness welling up, though he resisted it, bending his focus toward her instead. She sniffed again. I think I will have to face him soon. What will he do? I don't know, she said. Make me forget again, like he made me forget Amira or the world that fills our sky. She laughed and it was bitter in his ear. A daily glamour with my breakfast. Frederico closed his eyes to her words and imagined losing himself in forgetfulness. No memory of Sasha or Jazrel to stir his guilt and remind him of loss he brought about by sharing his mad sorrow with them. No recollection of the last months spent with Amal Yazir in her imaginary arms, held fast by her voice and her laughter, paralyzed by her tears. Would that be so very bad? he asked in a small voice. So very bad? There was an edge to her voice. To forget you and to forget these times? She paused. Even with what I know now, I'd rather remember. But did she know everything? Did she know what had happened in those bright-lit basements of his forefather? The priestess had whispered that part of the story to him, relaying the only unwritten chapter of Philippe Carnelion's gospel. Eventually, their same questions repeated again and again, had worn trails in the moon princess's mind, and eventually she had cried out one last breath in despair and hopelessness, and every hand in the room shook at the sound of it and dropped what it held. Every breath in the room caught and became a sob, a thousand years of weeping. I'd rather remember, she said again. Then after a moment, Oh, Frederico, I wish your ships could find me here and bring me to you. I wish it too, he said. They were quiet now, and Frederico could hear the sounds of the brook running and the frogs singing against the backdrop of her gentle bringing. He heard something, far and distant, deep and ominous. I have to go, she whispered suddenly. Father calls for me. Frederico heard her quickened footfalls fade quietly into the other sounds of that lunar night. After she'd gone, he lay there with the crescent and tried to find comfort in the frogs. There was no comfort to be found. It happened sometime in the night, and Frederico did not know it. He wakened in the morning, put the silver crescent back into its lockbox, and rang for servants that did not come. Finally, he went to the door and opened it. The Red Brigade guard was gone. Blackcoats stood watch in their place. What is the meaning of this? He asked, but he knew without asking. 
He'd seen Pyrrhus's face, had heard his laughter, and he'd known even then that this storm had brewed for some time. Until his interview with the priestess, he might have even welcomed this change, though it angered him that it came through Pyrrhus. But with war coming, it placed his people and the empire his family had built at tremendous risk. The black coat guard did not answer. He stared straight ahead at attention, freshly lacquered rifle held tightly to his side. He's ordered them not to speak. "'Send the servants in with my breakfast,' he said, "'and congratulate Minister Pyrrhus on his coup thus far.' He didn't wait for any kind of acknowledgment. Instead, he closed the door and went to his closets to dress for the day. Pyrrhus came in with the servants two hours later. He looked haggard and sleepless, but a satisfied smile played at his mouth. "'Well, Federico,' he said, "'how go your preparations for war?' Federico smiled and looked to the water clock that hissed upon his wall. "'I'm afraid we've nearly missed that meeting, Pyrrhus, but there is time yet.' "'Nearly a year if the priestess had spoken true. "'These were new servants,' Frederico realized, men and women he'd not seen before. "'They laid out his breakfast table silently, their careful glances taking in their former czar and the rooms he occupied. "'Pyrrhus sat to the table without invitation, and Frederico joined him. "'I've spoken with the new Minister of Social Behavior,' Pyrrhus said. For now, you'll remain here in your quarters, but they'll send the physicians later this week to determine just how mad you are and what treatments may help you find your way again. He reached out and broke off a piece of honeyed pastry. They're doing interesting things with electrostatic pulses and caliberries these days. Frederico smiled. You and I both know I am not mad. Pyrrhus laughed. I know no such thing. The evidence speaks too loudly for me to know it. He started listing his evidence on his fingers. "'Your own servants speak of strange goings-on hidden away in your rooms with that bauble. "'You spent the operating budget of a small nation scouring the land and sea "'for some mysterious family no one has heard of. "'You spent three hours with the lunarist priestess "'and released that dangerous woman and her mad followers "'without so much as a consultation with your cabinet. "'And now,' he said, leaning forward, "'you are ready to declare war upon the moon.' "'No,' he said, correcting him. "'I do not declare it. "'It has been declared upon us. "'And we've earned every last part of it.' He did not say. And the lunarists are harmless. We have a much larger threat to concern us. Pyrrhus shrugged. I suppose you've learned about this threat in your little bauble. No, Frederico said, feeling suddenly angry first at Pyrrhus and his smugness, but then, after a moment, with himself for letting any of this come to pass. He'd seen the signs and he'd not cared. He'd played his harp and stayed up nights, imagining the touch of a woman whose sister his family killed— whose father, according to the priestess, would some day avenge himself upon them all. Yet he could not be without her any more than he could be with her, and that built his rage even further. Taste and need. The anger in him was hot and white and fierce, but he forced his shaking hand to put down his cup of chai. He looked up, and his eyes met Pyrrhus. I've not heard it in the bauble. Pyrrhus waved a dismissive hand. It doesn't matter where you've heard it. You're unfit, Frederico, and the Empire needs leadership. He stood and smoothed the black robes of his dark office. You'll remain here until sufficient quarters can be arranged for you elsewhere. You'll want to make a list of the few things permitted for you to take when the time comes. He walked to the door and looked over his shoulder as he opened it. The silver bauble stays here. Frederico sat unmoving for a long time after Pyrrhus left him there. He bent his mind to his present circumstances and tried to find something beyond the anger that licked at him, chewed on him. Try as he might, 
He could find nothing past that primal emotion. He could not even find his tears. Two days slipped past, and Frederico bided time. He gathered up the documents he'd searched, ordered his findings into a logical flow, and stacked everything in a way that the new servants could easily return them to their proper place if the new czar, or would he go by some other title, chose not to look at them, chose not to see what Frederico had seen. He went to the Silver Crescent less and less, though now he left it out in the open. He heard nothing from it but frogs and water since Amal had left to see her father, and he wasn't sure he'd ever hear her voice again. Some part of him even wondered if perhaps she hadn't been a ruse, some part in Raj Yuzir's intricate game of vendetta. When her voice came through late in the afternoon of his third day under house arrest, it was muffled but excited. Frederico, are you there? He stood slowly, eyeing the silver crescent where it lay across the room. Frederico, my love, are you there? He moved towards it. My love. Oh, come quickly, she said, and her voice was nearly frantic. He could tell she was out of breath. He paused, then closed the gap. I'm here, he said. I found a way to you. I'm leaving my father. I'm coming to Aspira. He blinked back surprise. He'd not expected these words, and he found himself not knowing what to say. She continued, I'm packing now. I'm taking you with me, but I don't know if it will be safe to talk. Finally, he found words. How are you doing this? There's a pool in a cave deep beneath my father's tower, she said, the words tumbling out. It's where he goes to draw up his magics from the blood of your world, she paused. It's connected somehow. A childhood superstition about magics crept into his mind. The beneath places, he said. The so-called hell of the younger gods, where they plundered devils out of their souls and slept restless in their sins, or bargained for power. Stories, like the ghosts in the water, to keep children obedient. Yes, we call it that too. I will swim the pool and come to you. She hesitated. If you will have me. Frederico found her words discomforting, but did not know why initially. Then he realized his silence would not be taken the way he intended, and he blurted out the first question that came to mind. But why? It didn't sound the way he intended, and he reframed it. Why would you have me, Amal, knowing what my family did to your sister? You've wept those tears already, Frederico. They were never truly yours to weep. There was something in her voice that he could not place, and wondered if grace were an emotive quality. Tears enough on the way for all of us, she continued, without borrowing yesterday's. And in that moment, he forgot about the black coats outside his door, forgot about the rooms that waited him at the Ministry of Social Behavior, and forgot even about the wives that his grief had slain. All he could hear was the Moon Wizard's daughter as she asked again, Will you have me? I will. Then I will find you in Aspira if I can. And somehow he knew in that moment, without doubt, that he would never hear her voice again. But before he could reply, she was gone. He waited all day, hoping to hear her again, but knowing he would not. He took the silver crescent with him into his private dining room, and kept it near his tub as he bathed at the end of the day. He cradled it beside him on his pillow. That night, the weeping came upon him again. But it was different this time, because the loss was his own, and he understood it. Gone was Amira's final spell upon his family, replaced now by Amal's first, and the force of his bereavement racked his body in great sobs. 
Twice, the black coats inquired of his well-being and consulted quietly with cloaked couriers. Then, sometime in the early morning hours, they came for him and carried the last weeping czar out of his palace and loaded him into a carriage bound for his new home. A sense of time returned to Frederico, but he had no way to know how many days he'd lost, how long he'd been in this new place. His new rooms were loftier than his former, overlooking the forests beyond the city. The bars across his balcony cast the sunlight in straight lines across the carpeted floor, and though the rooms were much smaller, they were also more comfortable. He'd fallen quickly into a routine. He read over his morning chai, mostly novels and plays, but sometimes he read poetry as well. He met with his physicians after breakfast, and then exercised outdoors under the supervision of disinterested guards. In the afternoons, he practiced his harp. When Pyrrhus came to him, his face white and his hands shaking, Frederico had just sat down and raised his fingers to the strings. He looked up. Minister Pyrrhus, he said, inclining his head. Or is it Chancellor now? The old man said nothing. He stretched out his hand towards Frederico, and in it, wrapped in black velvet, was the silver crescent. Frederico stood. The sight of it stopped his breath, and then he saw the look of stunned surprise on his own face reflected back in its mirrored surface. He reached out and took it, held it to his ear. Hello? Two daughters have you taken from me out of my house. A voice like Silk said, and I will have blood for each of them. Raj Yazir continued quietly and with confidence. When I fall upon you, it will shake the foundations of the world. My physicians will cut you up for my pleasure. Frederico looked up and saw the wideness of Pyrrhus's eyes. I've not taken your daughter, Lord Yazir. She's left you of her own free will. You've taken her, whether you know it or not. She swum the bargaining pool, but she was too young to know that her body could not make the journey. Her spirit is yours for now. Frederico closed his eyes. These were tears he'd already wept, but he felt them again at the back of his eyelids. You will not hear my voice again until it is in the sky above you, Raj Yazir said. Until then, know that a wrathful god builds his army and his bridge. After that, silence. Frederico smiled grimly and looked at Pyrrhus, returning the crescent to him. I believe this changes your position considerably. The old general said nothing as Frederico sat back down and let his fingers find their way over the harp strings. The canticle was upbeat, but in a minor key, haunting and yet triumphant. It is a love song, Frederico realized. The war production was in full swing when Frederico took to his new estate near Belle-sur-la-Mer. He left the affairs of the state in the hands of his capable Chancellor Tannen, and left the gunfields and navies in the hands of his new Minister of War. Pyrrhus had taken to the role with gratitude appropriate for a spared life and a treason forgiven. He found the same routines he'd discovered during his brief stay in the ministry. They comforted him, and he added new ones. He took to walking the markets by day and the beaches by night his bare feet shuffling over sand, still wet from the sun, and bathed blue-green in the light of the moon. Sometimes, late at night, he even sat on the pier with his harp and played. His servants thought him mad, but he was the Lord Tsar and could do as he pleased. One night, as the lamps guttered low and his fingers ached from the strings, Frederico stood and stretched. He walked to the end of the dock and looked up into the night sky. 
It had been just past a year now, he realized, and he knew now that the year of the falling moon was not literal after all. He had wondered. But the anniversary of Jazrael's passing had come and gone more than two months ago, and there had been no shaking ground or raining fire, no booming voice crying out vengeance. Hanging there, full and bright, the moon waited. And in that moment, deep in the waters at the end of the pier, something moved. At first, Frederico thought it was a reflection, blue and green light upon the warm night sea. But then it moved again, and he started. He looked over his shoulder to the crimson guard that waited by the front doors of his estate, to the servants stationed near their bell. Crouching, he leaned forward and looked into the water. It was slender and beautiful, and it coiled around the pillar of the dock before sliding off and out, a line of blue-green light moving away and deeper, as if part of the moon had fallen and now sank. A mole. He couldn't tell if he said it aloud or silently, but a sudden fancy took him. Soft and low, he whistled the tune he'd been playing just minutes ago, and watched the light flicker as it turned about and drifted slowly back to him. What had her father said? Her body could not make the journey. And he realized then that the year of the falling moon was not about conquest and war, vendetta and violence. They'd only had part of Carnelian's gospel, the angry, broken potsherds of loss. Those would still come, but they were not the message of promise. No, Frederico realized, this gospel was really about love a love so strong that it would swim relentless at any price, and so piercing that it could be heard in the deepest of dark places. You found me, he said quietly, and with that Frederico stood, returned to his harp, and gave himself to song. There you go. Thank you, Ken. And thank you, Tor.com, for allowing Starship Sova to play this story. Fantastic. So, which one did you like? Let me know. Starshipsova at gmail.com. Come over to the forums, get the debate going over there. Get on Twitter and explain which one you like over there on Twitter. Just do hash Starship Sova and everyone will get to see it. So, little heads up what's happening in the show from now on. And, you know... Why I'm doing, why I'm actually sitting down and, and actually telling you how it's going to be is because if I don't, then I'll not get my finger out and do it, to be quite honest. You know, I kind of put on the back burner, I put like sofa notes, the other show on the back burner. And I, I was, you know, saying to myself, you know, it's concentrate more on Starship so far, you know, and kind of make oral delights, you know, even more richer and f- fun to read and to listen to. And I haven't been doing anything. <laughs> I haven't done bugger all. I haven't done bugger all that. Reed got an Xbox for Christmas. And I've, honestly, and I've, actually, I've seen, I shouldn't be saying this, but it was an 18 Call of Duty. And I got that as well. And I've just been on that. Do you know what I mean? And it's the first game I've played for a long, long time. I think it was the second Metal Gear Solid that I actually completed. You know, that was my first ever game that I completed. And this, you know, this is how long it's taken to get to the next one. So, to get my finger off the settee and stop playing video games, you know, I'm kind of laying down my format of what else I'm going to try and include in Oral Delights. And like I say, some some of them I'm trying to going to do every week if I if I can kind of sort things out. And others might be once a month, might be a little bit longer. There's two things that I'm aiming to to do. 
first off which will just be a little kind of a snippet really every week is do a little news section it's basically what sofa notes was you know we used to discuss the news over there what i'm intending to do is just at the beginning of the show maybe five minutes if that just if there's any news in the kind of industry of science fiction if anything's happened over there you know just a, a little quick not nothing going in depth just like really the headlines, you know, because I did know, and I forget actually, <laughs> well, how good am I going to be? I've forgotten. But I know fantasy and science fiction are now collaborating with an online website, and come on, who is it? No, no, I ain't going to even look. But anyways, you know, that's a little bit of news, because, you know, over at Sofa Notes, fantasy and science fiction did get a bit of hammering often you know because we'll keep on saying they're not getting into the you know the, the web experience but now they're certainly making inroads and it's little things like that i just want to kind of at the beginning of the show you know after the editorial if there is some news there might not be any news you know put that together ideally i would have liked someone else do you know because sometimes if it's just me all the time whittering on I don't know if um you know let us know do you know what i mean if, if that's what you prefer or you prefer little pure little segments from different people joined up. I'm easy. Do you know what I mean? I was going to aim for, you know, maybe kicking one or two off and then getting someone else in, you know, to run it. But if you want me to kind of do it, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm easy. The next idea is, which I'm aiming for, and it might be a little bit more difficult, I, I'm not too sure, but at the once a month, I want to do another little section where it's an interview and... I've been, just before Christmas, I think it was, I was asking on Twitter and everywhere, really, just to, you know, get some questions, send us some science fiction questions. I whittled all these because I was, there was loads of questions just to ask a science fiction writer. I've just had to pull away from the mic there, just sneezed like, (laughs) certainly don't listen to that. But I got all these questions, you know, and there was, like I say, hundreds of science fiction questions. I've whittled them down, and I've got 15 science, you know, like questions to ask science fiction writers. And what I want to do is just ask 15 questions each month, you know, get a science fiction writer on and just ask those questions. You know, never, I don't even like, you know, you know how you kind of do an interview and then you might ask another question and another question leads on to another question. I don't want that. I just want to get these 15 questions and they can answer it yes, no, or they could go in a little bit more detail, but it'll always be the same 15 questions. And I'm aiming for like a 10-minute slot with that as well. So that's another idea. So there you go. And like I say, that's the reason why I'm telling you now because I haven't... <laughs> set it in you know i've got the questions and i've got a couple of people who are kind of on the the horizon who i'm kind of aiming to interview where i've never asked yet but if i don't you know mention it and that i'll just sit on the xbox that's not good man 43 nearly 40 well 43 still still got six months to go do you know what i mean old fart can be bloody playing kiddies games anyway by i heard that that um call of duty What's it? Modern Warfare 2 has made over a billion dollars. Do you know what I mean? They're just outstripping the film industry, the book industry, music industry. Unreal. You know, I mean, granted, you know, the science fiction industry is right there behind them. (laughs) How low are we in the world? (laughs) So that's, that's my idea. 
I've got it penciled in to the first interviewee is Lucius Shepard, because I've always thought he was a little bit of an enigma and he's lent Starship so I've some stories and I've always kind of admired Lucius, so it'd be nice to kind of just have a chat with him, really, you know, but like I say, it'd be 15 questions and that's it, do you know what I mean? There's no more, there'll be no wandering off, you know, wandering down the dales and, and glens and probing more questions, it'll be those 15 questions every time. And last but up is the iPhone app, and still I haven't, I haven't put together the, oh, because I've been playing on the bloody Xbox, the iPhone app. We're still looking into it, how, but what it will be, there'll be like little bits of fucking free tidbits in there for people who've bought the iPhone app. So there you go. That is Oral Delights, show number 117. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Thank <laughs> you.